Sinai. Uh, verse 25 of Exodus 19 says, So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And the next 17 verses are the Ten Commandments. And then from verses 18 through the end of the chapter and the next five chapters, Moses gives a sermon, as it were. He gives an exposition of the Ten Commandments and how those Ten Commandments apply to family, to civics, to war, to all kinds of areas of life. And so following his pattern, I want to read from the scripture, then preach on the text. And if you would turn to Genesis chapter 1, I want to read from God's law word, verses 28 through 31. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Well, no, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. When God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Amen. Father, as I uh, come and give exposition of your word, I pray that you would enable me to clearly, accurately uh, communicate uh, this uh, powerful passage to uh, this people. I feel weak, O oh God, but uh, you are the God who brought life out of death. You are the God who brought order of, out of disorder. You are the God uh, who can take the feebleness of our words and you can cause it to be powerful in our hearts. And so I pray that you would take the word, that you would quicken it to our hearts, and that you would enable us to be not only a hearing, but a doing people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There was a young couple who had uh, just joined a church that had kind of a reputation for being a little bit wild but they loved it and they were trying to get their grandmother to come and their grandmother didn't seem to be too interested but one Sunday when they were eating dinner uh, with her uh, the grandson just blurted out grandma worship service was just awesome you should have been there the Holy Spirit was there preacher was screaming at the top of his lungs and the people were jumping up like popcorn all over the place just praising the Lord the Holy Spirit was there you ought to have been there it was terrific well, she didn't seem to be too impressed, but she didn't say anything. She just uh, continued to uh, eat there. And finally, the grandson says, Grandma, why is it you don't like our church? And she said, Honey, let me put it this way. I don't care how loud they shout, and I don't care how, how high they jump. It's what they do when they come back down that counts. And that's what I want to say about the church of Jesus Christ today. It's really not the bells and the whistles and how beautiful the buildings are and the programs and things like that that uh, matter in God's sight. It's what we do when we come back down that uh, really counts. Uh, what difference does our Christianity make in our day-by-day -day involvement in the world? Uh, this morning, 
There has been tons of money and tons of energy that has been expended in the worship services, and that's a good thing. Um, there's uh, some things that, you know, we don't do, but there has been art and drama, and there's been money, there's been music, carefully crafted uh, sermons, uh, wonderful worship in some of the churches. But the question is, what do we do when we come back down? Have we made a lick of difference in our culture? You know, after all of the the rah-rah has stopped, we need to evaluate, have we been salt and light in the community when we go out of the doors of the worship service? Because that's where the church goes. The church is here resting and receiving from the Lord and, and worshiping him. But what do we do when we go out into the world? God commanded us to disciple the nations. And one of the things that Billy Graham admitted to in a taped interview was that his method of evangelism has been a failure. Now, there is a place for mass evangelism, but in terms of discipleship and things like that, he said it has been a failure because he said when you look at the numbers of people who have come to Christ and the fact that there has been no change in culture, something is drastically wrong. He and others have pointed out that we have poured more money into reaching the world. We have poured more technology, radio, TV, publishing, and all kinds of programs at this world than any other generation in history, and they have pointed out that we have had less impact upon our culture than any other period in history. And so he says there's something desperately wrong. And I think that's one of the reasons why Franklin Graham is recognizing we cannot compromise. We cannot just be reducing to preaching the gospel and leaving babes to flounder on their own even in africa you know where there's so much uh growth of the of, of the christian church and it's phenomenal the growth that is out there the church has not been trained in what it looks like to be a christian in culture and so you'll find situations like in rwanda christians fighting against christians in a very pagan way and being committed to very pagan things you look in south america at um uh, some of the uh, evangelical churches down there and missionaries come back they just shake their heads and they say why are they adopting liberation theology marxist theology uh, that is so anti-christian but the thing is we have not taught them a comprehensive worldview and so when something comes along that you know is comprehensive that deals with all of life they're quick to adopt it and so evangelicals have been adopting marxist liberation theology and that is not the answer now there may be any number of reasons as to why our generation has not been able to effectively impact our world. Uh, at a later sermon, I'm going to be preaching on the subject of holiness because I am convinced that an unholy church is a powerless church. It will not be able to impact its culture. And there may be other reasons as well. But I am convinced that one of the reasons we have failed to have an impact upon our culture is because we don't believe in the dominion mandate. Uh, we have a truncated view about what Christianity is about and what uh, our commission and our calling on earth is all about. And so uh, we're going to look this morning at the Dominion Mandate. And before we look at what is involved in it, I want to first of all demonstrate that when God gave that mandate, he already provided for them absolutely everything that they needed to be able to effectively carry out the mandate. First, covenant provision was that god created both adam and eve in his own image and in his own likeness now that is huge that is absolutely huge we're going to be spending a fair bit of time on this because if you fail to understand 
the implications of the image of God within us, the kind of dominion we're taking is not going to be a God-honoring dominion. And so if you take a look at verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there are other scriptures that speak a lot and give the kind of details and amplification of what it means to be made in the image of God. And I've outlined seven different things that being in the image of God means. And the first one is that God created us to be social beings long before there were any men and women, long before there were any angels. Uh, God, the one God, lived in perfect communion within his Godhead. He always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I want to read verse 26 again. I want you to notice something. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Even though there has only been one God, he has always existed in three persons. And I, I can't get into the hugely profound ramifications of that concept this morning. There's entire books that are written on uh, how, how profound that is. Well, let me just give you one small sample that relates to what we're talking about here. Your view of love is framed by how you view the Trinity. Now, let me explain. A Unitarian believes that God is only one person, not three persons. And so if the Unitarian believes God is love, and he was, that's his characteristic, God is love from all eternity past before there were any angels and before there was any man, what was God loving? There was no creatures to love. The only thing he could love was himself. It would be a very selfish love. It would be inwardly directed. But when you have the concept of the Trinity, what do you have? You've got the Father loving the Holy Spirit and loving the Son. You've got the Son loving the Spirit and the Father. There is a constant outgoing of love, a self-giving love, a very unselfish love. And, uh, and so the concept of God being a social being has many profound ramifications. But anyway, here you've got the hint that we've talked about before of God being a Trinity. From all eternity past, he was a social being. There was no need for man. He wasn't lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fellowship together. Well, the first word describing man after describing God's image is the plural word for mankind. Let me read that again. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. The plural in the manhood is necessitated by the plurality uh, in the Godhead. And the reason individuals grow lonely and the reason God says it is not good for man to be alone well, is because he's made in the image of God. He's made to be a social creature. He is made to fellowship. Now, sin has marred that, and so we find people who uh, like to be loners and uh, uh, who uh, isolate themselves from other people. But that is sin. That has been marred by the fall. And as we are being restored back into the image of God, and even unbelievers have the image of God, but as we are being restored into a proper alignment, God says he's going to make us social creatures. And uh, that is a very, very important part of our work together. It has profound ramifications in all of the dis disciplines. The genius of the free market economics is that it fully utilizes this aspect of, 
uh, of um, God's image in the division of labor. In fact, I've got an essay on the ground beside my briefcase case back there written by Leonard Reed. It's one of my favorite essays, two-pager. It's called I Pencil. And it, uh, it gives economic lessons, but the thing that I think it highlights is that it shows how inescapable this concept of the social image of man is. You cannot escape from it. Socialists try, but even there, it is impossible to escape. And, and that's just, I think, a brilliant examination uh, just in the area of uh, uh, free market eco economics. The second thing that makes man like God is that man can communicate. Now, what an incredible blessing communication is uh, from God. Throughout this chapter, God speaks, and he names things. What's the first thing he has Adam do? He speaks, and he names things. And animals can't do that. Now, scientists have been experimenting for a long time with monkeys, trying to get monkeys and apes and uh, 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 various other creatures like that to communicate with signs and symbols. And they've got them to do some rather clever things, but they've never got them to engage in true language. Impossible. But God, from the moment a child is conceived, has imprinted that ability for communication right within our character. And even secular linguists have just been fascinated by this. Um, you take a, a child from a Swahili tribe, from Mexico, from Russia, you all put the, these babies into your home. And uh, the scientists have shown how they use the same deep root structures of language to be able to make sense out of your sounds and eventually to speak your language. God has embedded that right into their fiber and into their being. It's parts of God's image, and it must be used in dominion of every sort. And so, children, don't despise grammar. Don't despise your vocabulary drills that your parents make you uh, uh, go through. Writing essays, debate, all of those things, I think, are an important part of using our image to God's glory and taking dominion of, um, of this, this world. Uh, this past week, I, I previewed a DVD uh, set that I keep forgetting the name of it but deals with creative writing and it is out of this world it's fantastic I wish I had had it years ago and uh, I hope to learn to improve my communication uh, over the years but uh, ask me about it afterwards I think it's the best thing I have seen on communication anyway third part of God's image in man is logic and reasoning powers John chapter 1 says that Christ enlightens every man who comes into the world doesn't matter whether he's a Christian or he's a pagan. Every man has been given by Christ rationality, logic, reasoning powers built right into their souls. You could not even understand the Bible if it was not embedded into your very being, the law of non-contradiction, that A cannot be uh, both A and non-A at the same time. Okay, It would be gibberish. We wouldn't be able to make any sense out of it. And so logic is a very important part. Now, it's been marred by sin some people say well if that's the image of god does that mean that retarded people are not in the image of god and i would say no every part of the in image of god is to one degree or another marred in man since the fall but even retarded people have this reason this logic embedded in them and when they die or when their brains or their minds are separated from their brains they will be reasoning with the same logic and rationality that god has in place into into uh, every human being and i highly highly recommend that you teach your children logic at least the informal fallacies 
And if you don't know them, learn them yourself. Uh, learn right along with the children. There is actually a computer program where you can pick up the informal fallacies very easily. Um, it's a demo program. There's also books that I can recommend. But we do need to fine-tune and try to, again, conform to the image of Christ, thinking his thoughts after him are reasoning powers. Fourth aspect of the image of God and man is that man was made as a moral creature. As soon as God made man, God started giving commands in verses 28 through 31. And then in chapter 2, you see, again, his commands, don't eat from this, do eat from that. And men responded without having to be trained, you know, how to respond. They sensed God's laws within their being. In fact, if you want to read an excellent uh, treatise on the law of God before Mount Sinai in the book of Genesis, you can go on web, and there's a site uh, that has all of Dr. Francis Nigel Lee's books that you can just download. And one of his booklets uh, deals with that subject, and he demonstrates how Adam and Eve not only knew all Ten Commandments, but they had embedded into their very being all Ten Commandments. They could not get away from it, and how they broke all Ten of the Commandments when they ate of the fruit. It's really a fascinating study uh, that, uh, that uh, he gives there. And so um, the whole concept of being moral beings, I think, is important. When a baby is born, it is not born with a blank slate on its brain. That is a humanistic concept of developmental psychology and so many Christian educators have bought into that view, and it affects your view of education. It really does. And so we need to be thinking, you know, biblically. If God says in the Bible that infants sin within the womb, that means there is morality within the womb, right? It says that he has imprinted the laws of God right within the womb, and as soon as they are born, they go astray speaking lies. Now, you don't have to speak English to speak lies. Yeah, there's body language. You know, there's crying, there's cooing, there's facial expressions, but the scripture indicates right off the bat these children begin to deceive and to be deceived. But um, uh, they sin even within the womb, and that means, mothers, that, that when you find kicks against your ribs, it might simply be stretching and exercising, but it might be anger. It might be frustration, and you may want to put your hand on your womb and pray to God and say, God, I just pray that you would take this child's sinful heart to yourself, that you would take away the anger and the frustration and you would replace it with joy and with contentment. From the earliest times, you need to be working with your children, even before they're born, okay? And praying that God would cause his spirit to be in their lives. Romans 1 through 3 indicates that pagan men and women know that it's wrong to lie, to cheat, to commit adultery, to fail to worship God. They know homosexuality is wrong. They deceive themselves by suppressing that knowledge, but deep down they really know that it is all wrong. By the way, that in presuppositional apologetics, yeah, gives us a tremendous advantage, doesn't it? Because we know they know. <laughs> and so we don't need to worry about convincing them. We bring the truth of God's word into their lives. And so it's a gift. It's a gift for dominion. It's a gift for evangelism. The fifth part of God's image in man is the urge to take dominion. Now, boy, does this start early when children start touching and tasting and trying to control their environment and control their parents. And you know, many times these children are very good at dominion. It's an ungodly dominion when they've got the parents wrapped around their fingers. But dominion is there. It is, it is uh, there part and parcel. Verse 26 defines part of the image as the capacity to rule or to take dominion. Now this means that laziness 
is not only a sin against God's dominion mandate, it is a sin against the very image of God in man. Don't put up with laziness. Uh, as the old um, proverb says, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And uh, so right from the beginning, we need to be involving our children and ruling, taking control over different areas, taking control of their rooms, wherever. Uh, but uh, dominion is part of the image of God. The sixth aspect of image is the ability to relate to God. Adam and Eve were made for worship. They were made to depend upon God and uh, to pray to him, to follow his word. And again, this distinguishes us from animals. A man was made to relate to, to pray to, to worship God. And when we are restored into the image of God, this aspect of dominion begins to to um, transform us. Instead of taking dominion in an independent fashion, in a rebellious fashion, in a selfish fashion, just serving ourselves, we take dominion uh, uh, in a servant heart and with dependence upon God. The last aspect of man's image is the ability to make choices. Now, God's the ultimate cho chooser, isn't he? He predestined all things. But we are made in his image and even though God predestined all things, he did it in such a way that we are not mere robotons, you know, that just do whatever God, you know, uh, has us do. He controls everything, but he controls it in a way where we have free moral choice. Not a free will, because our will is bound by our sinful nature, right? But we have free moral choice. What we choose to do, we want to do. It is our choice. It's not somebody else's choice, and that's why God can rightly condemn our actions or praise our actions when uh, they are right. And all seven of these uh, are a wonderful provision of God that enables us to take dominion. Now, God's second gracious provision was that God gave mankind all of the material resources that he would ever need to take dominion. In the previous 25 verses of chapter 1, he created light, heat, gravity, magnetism, all of the energies, the minerals, whatever is needed, uh, he created those for us. It was placed under his control. Jeremiah 31, especially Jeremiah 33, indicates that even the sun, the moon, and the stars were placed here under man's authority. Uh, psalm 8, the dominion psalm, revels in God's good gifts of animals, land, and yes, even stars. And so the very universe needs to be harnessed for the glory of God. Uh, God's third provision was a sonship privilege and it's a privilege that we have been restored to. Now, that's hinted at just by the actions of God in this chapter. It's made very explicit in chapter 5, and it's made even more explicit in Luke 3, verse 38, where we've got a genealogy of going up to the, from Adam to Christ, but it goes backwards. It says Jesus was the son of, and it goes on, he was the son of, and he was the son of, and Adam was the son of God. And so there was sonship that God uh, gave to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2, God shows a special relationship of care for Adam and Eve. He provides a home for them. Uh, he also creates the Sabbath in which that father-child relationship can be nurtured. We should not think of the covenant that was made here in simply legal terms. Some people, uh, well, even our Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, calls it the covenant of works. And depending on how you interpret it, it can be right or it can be wrong. Uh, it is right in the sense that there were legal aspects to it, and Adam was expected to do works. But if all we see is the legal aspect, like some Reformed theologians have, have made it out to be, I think we miss a huge dimension to the dominion mandate because God 
gave a sonship privilege. He could pray. He could ask for anything that sonship privilege uh, gave. And there was a much warmer dimension than just say, okay, it's a legal relationship, covenant of works. No, God had Adam and Eve as, as uh, children. Okay, God's third provision, no, fourth provision, was that uh, uh, God taught uh, Adam and Eve, and he taught them in different ways. Uh, we see oral teaching going on in verses 28 through 31. We see more of that kind of teaching in chapter 2. But I, I think one of the most helpful aspects of teaching is modeling to other people. God showed Adam, and by showing him how to make this garden, he showed him how to take dominion over the rest of the field. Now, let me, let me point out something to you. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden. Okay, he's made already. Now he's planting the garden. Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So Adam is already formed before the garden is made. He's out there walking around, looking at all of the things God has made. And God says, look, I'm going to show you what I, what, what it's, what's going to be involved in taking dominion of this earth. And God starts crafting this garden, perhaps bringing jewels and things out of the ground, like Ezekiel talks about all of the jewels and the precious stones that were in the Garden of Eden. And so God is taking dominion of one little plot of ground. He puts Adam into it to care for it, and he says, now I've told you, now I've showed you, I want you to go out and I want you to subdue the rest of the earth. And so he's modeling to them uh, what it means to uh, take dominion. And I think we need to take a cue from that. If we tell our children, go clean your rooms, but we never show them how, and we never walk them through the process, you do it first for them, then you have them do it. <coughs> you correct them, say, no, here's a better way of doing it, then that you have them do it. That's a modeling kind of a teaching, hands-on. We're only doing half of the teaching <coughs> when we fail to model. Everything was taught from God's perspective. So here is the first Christian education. Okay, God did not send his uh, newly formed children uh, to Satan to get his education. No humanistic education here. He didn't even send his children to the angels to get education, did he? He took his parental responsibility and God taught Adam and Eve himself. And uh, I think we need to uh, follow his model. Education in the truth, education in the scriptures is absolutely critical if we are to take dominion as God wants dominion taken. Even in later history, after the fall, God did not have um, Israel going off to the Canaanites to get their education. It didn't matter if they were smarter. Uh, their responsibility was to train their children in the covenant. And we need to take the cue uh, from that. We have violated a fundamental point of dominion if we fail to educate our children from God's viewpoint, having them think God's thoughts after him, okay? Now, the fifth covenantal blessing for dominion was that God established role relationships to aid in this dominion, the male to lead, the female to help, and the urge for males to be like females and females to be like males is demonic. It does not come from God at all. Verse 27 says, male and female he created them. God clearly intended there to be profound differences between the man and the woman so that they could complement each other, not compete with each other. He didn't need a duplicate. He needed somebody that could do things he couldn't do, right? 
And so there's complementarianism, not egalitarianism. And so uh, this is one thing I think we need to uh, think about. It's amplified in chapter 2. Uh, interestingly, Adam takes the initiative because the word mankind is not taken from Eve. It's taken from man. Travis uh, pointed that out, I think, wasn't it, in one of the, the talks there. He was not complete without her help. She is not complete without his leadership. Both needed each other. That's what we're talking about in terms of complementarianism. Now, when those role uh, differences are ignored, the ability to fulfill the covenant is destroyed, and feminists recognize that. Uh, the gender-neutral Bibles that are coming out uh, are seeking to destroy the distinction between the sexes. And some people say, well, you know, some of the things that, you know, the conservatives are criticizing, they're so minor. Like, yeah, I can see that we shouldn't be calling God a, an it or a she. Uh, but really, is it that important, the difference between mankind and humankind? Yeah, there's essays that show huge ramifications for the difference between uh, mankind and humankind. Anyway, let me just read from Daphne Hampson, who was a feminist scholar who has abandoned Christianity, but she recognizes with conservative Christians that if you obliterate the role distinctions between uh, men and women that the Bible lays down, you have effectively gutted Christianity of its distinctiveness. I mean, there's other distinctives as well, but it is gutted. Uh, she says, in the fall 1995 issue of Touchstone, she says, Feminism represents the death knell of Christianity as a viable religious option. It is conservative Christians who, together with the more radical feminists, perceive that feminism represents not just one crisis among many, for the feminist challenge strikes at the heart of Christianity. Christianity is a religion of revelation with a necessary foot in history. It cannot lose that reference as long as it remains Christianity, and that reference is to a patriarchal history. And she is right. Right from the beginning, it's patriarchy. That male-female distinction is fundamental to the Dominion Covenant and to all of Christianity. And when we reject that, we're not going to be taking the kind of dominion that God intended. Uh, finally, in verse 28, it says, Then God blessed them. God's blessing. That's the ultimate covenant blessing. Uh, covenant provision and this covenant blessing can only be restored in Christ Jesus because God does not say all things work together for pagans does it in fact all things work together for their condemnation it's only as we are restored to Jesus Christ who is the second Adam who by the way fulfills Psalm 8 Psalm 8 is the reiteration of the dominion mandate Genesis 9 does as well but Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament saying Jesus is the one who fulfills that. And the only way we can enter into all things being under our feet is as we enter in through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that are hidden all of the treasures of God. It's, uh, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Um, you know, a lot of different scriptures indicate it's only in Jesus that this blessing has been renewed. Since it's renewed, since we're in Christ, there is absolutely no reason why we cannot take the dominion mandate out into the world okay so let's go on to the covenant mandate itself we've seen god's given us everything that we need now what is our responsibility well th the first thing that we see <clears throat> is that it was not a centralized mandate like socialism calls for uh, verse 28 says then god blessed them god said to them and so the first thing i want to point out is that god did not give the dominion mandate to one centralized individual 
He gave it to both. Now, this is maybe splitting hairs, but I think there is uh, an important point here. Marxists like to see all dominion wrapped up in one person, and that person is the head of the state, whether it's a Stalin or some other uh, individual, and uh, the scripture does not, uh, does not see it that way. They believe in centralization of power, control, government into one organization. They've done everything that they can to hinder or to limit the family to procreation. And even there, they're interfering. In China, you know, forced sterilization after one baby. And uh, uh, the scripture gives dominion to all. Both the men and the women are given the dominion. Both the men and the women are given the provision. They're made in the image of God. Now, roles are different but both have the dominion. In verse 26, it says, let them have dominion. Now, this has huge ramifications for family, church, and state. Uh, it has ramifications in, in other areas as well. It was only later that God, uh, by division of labor, created three separate governments, and that was needed because of the checks and balances uh, for, because of sin. Now, I want you to notice here, what is the fundamental unit of society? Not man alone because it is not good for man to be alone. Uh, it's not the church, it's not the state, and it's not even children, because the children eventually leave and they get married to others. It is the husband and the wife. In verse 31, there were no children, and yet with the husband and the wife, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And anything that comes between the husband and the wife is heading the family toward trouble. And when the state begins to erode the family, things are heading to trouble. When the church begins to erode the family, things are heading to trouble. When children come between the parents, things are heading to trouble. And so the fundamental unit is the family, especially the husband and the wife uh, relationship. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Secondly, if man is to carry out dominion mandate, he must imitate God. He must image God. He must seek to do things like God. Now, here I'm using the word image as a verb. Before, I used it as a noun. Man is the image, okay? He already has all the components. Now, I'm using it as a verb. He needs to image. He needs to live out that. He needs to imitate the way God uh, uh, works, but he needs to use this image in taking dominion. Okay, first ramification, socially. If man seeks to take dominion and total isolation from the rest of society, he's failing on the first point of image. Uh, God wants dominion taken in a social context. That's why he says, and he emphasizes, it is not good for man to be alone. And some people are tempted to ignore that. Let me just illustrate in terms of the church. In 1 Peter, Peter gives an outline of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in brief form but he indicates that every single gift needs to be used in service to other people. If a person has the gift of administration, he might be tempted to be frustrated with people and say, I just like to administrate things. You know, people are a nuisance. Uh, but everything has to be for the people. And even a person who is an explorer, who's going out alone, you know, to trailblaze, he needs to be doing it for the purpose of ministering and benefiting other people. Second and third aspects, verbal and rational, I've already dealt with that adequately, I think, but we need to hone our verbal skills and debate and things like that. We need to hone our, our logical skills and, and thinking. And <coughs> the fourth 
uh, area, we must carry out the dominion mandate in an ethically proper manner. Now, God laid down rules for Adam and Eve and what they were supposed to do, what they were not supposed to do. They were supposed to rule and they were supposed to take dominion for six days and they were supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. And if they failed to rest, they were taking dominion in an ungodly way. Uh, they were not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they disobey God on that, it's a demonic kind of a dominion. But we need to uh, be ethical. There is no such thing as a neutral discipline. It's either for Christ or it is against Christ. And we need to understand, what does the word say about my discipline or my area of work that I'm involved in? There is no such thing. It's either moral or it's immoral, for Christ or against Christ. And we've got to study th what the Scripture says. Fourth, fifth, <laughs> fifth, we must not be half-hearted or sloppy in our work. The Hebrew word used here for rule or dominion indicates asserting one's authority over something with the foot. And you can see all kinds of examples for that Hebrew usage. Um, when one king would conquer another king, uh, many times that king would bow down and this king would stick his foot on his neck as a symbol, I'm now ruling on your property, okay? I've got authority over you. And you can see other examples. Uh, one of the Psalms... Uh, and I forget which one it is, it's, he takes his, uh, he says, God says, I, I tossed my shoe, is it over Moab or over Edom, one of the two, and it's a symbol, I'm taking authority over that land there, okay? Uh, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I have given to you, it's an indication, this is being taken for King Jesus. Psalm 8, the same thing, it reiterates the dominion mandate, and it says, all these things have been placed under man's feet and especially under the Lord Jesus Christ, under uh, his feet. And so it's rule, it's taking it all the way. So children, let me encourage you. Do not let your homework take dominion over you and make you just give up and say, I can't do it. No, you got to put your foot on that homework. You got to take authority over that homework. Uh, men, when you're going out into the world, don't just do a half-baked job. You know, take mountains for Christ. Uh, uh, seek to stretch yourself, going into new areas. We've got to be all out in taking dominion uh, for the Lord. <clears throat> so take, uh, when you're cleaning your rooms, children, or doing your laundry, uh, don't need to literally step on it, but take dominion of it. Don't let it take dominion of you. And then finally, we image God by doing our dominion spiritually as unto God. And, and Paul in Colossians and again in Ephesians says, even slaves, when they did their menial chores, they could do it as unto Christ. And that means that their work counted for all of eternity. Some people think the only spiritual things you can do are witnessing and praying and devotions and stuff like that. But the Bible says you're serving Christ with your carpentry. You're serving Christ wherever uh, you may be. And so it needs to be done spiritually to God's glory. Now let's just take a couple of minutes and we'll, we'll quit here real quick at looking at how comprehensive this dominion mandate really is. Verse 28 says, Then God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, let's just start with that, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, it, 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 it requires procreation. We already dealt with this uh, last week fairly adequately, I think. But um, if anybody says that you shouldn't have lots of kids and they rebuke you for um, having lots of ch uh, children, pull out the book for some good arguments from R.J. Rushdoony 
called The Myth of Overpopulation. And another excellent book that I've got is called Prospects for Growth by E. Kelvin Beisner. And it's a wonderful book. Beisner points out that if every man, woman, and child on the planet Earth were placed into the state of Texas, each one would have, let me get the figure here, 1,373 square feet, each person. That means a family our size would have a lot, 12,000 square feet, and you've got all the rest of the world to deal with, okay? It just don't buy this idea of overpopulation. Now, there can be areas that are overpopulated because of the lack of dominion. You know, America was overpopulated with the Indians at many times because they did not have the dominion abilities to harness the resources that God supplied in this land. And so it's a relative term. Um, uh, Japan, you know, is a prosperous country, very highly, densely populated, and yet, you know, not overpopulated in terms of, in terms of resources. So just don't buy into that argument. Secondly, God says, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it. Now, there's no way Adam and Eve could have subdued the earth by themselves. They would start in the Garden of Eden, and as they had more children and the grandchildren and great-grandchildren, they would branch out. And if you think of how long it takes to get great-grandchildren, by this time, the rest of the world would have been one tangle of weeds and forests. and I mean, it would have taken subduing to, to harness uh, that world uh, in, in a, in a God-honoring way. Uh, subduing the earth comes before having dominion over the earth. It's true of cultures. It's true of individuals. Until you can subdue your passions, until you can be subdued under King Jesus, you're not going to take effective dominion. Same is true of land. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the Indians, uh, they did not have the cumulative generations of dominion attitudes and technology that the West had. Now, I'm not saying the West did everything right. I think we did some abominable things when we came to America. But the point is, there were the same resources, but the dominion attitude made far wiser use of those. Okay, so subdue uh, the earth. The next part of the command was to take dominion over everything that lives he says have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air over every living thing that moves on the earth now there's a big difference between ruling over animals and abusing animals and some people are not sensitive to this and we ought not to abuse animals or just treat them lightly the bible in proverbs 12 verse 10 says a righteous man regards the life of his animal but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel God calls us to care for and to manage animals, and sometimes that may mean that we'll harvest deer because they're getting overpopulated, they're starving, there's sickness that's going to come in, it might endanger the whole tribe. Not tribe, what the herd, thank you. <laughs> the whole herd of deer. Sometimes it might mean uh, protecting endangered species, but we need to keep in mind that it's not the creatures that rule over us. We rule over the creatures, and I think that the Greenpeace movement has turned things completely upside down in, in that regard. And I highly recommend some of E. Calvin Beisner's books that show the errors of the Green movement, some incredibly, unbelievably bad errors in their calculations and all kinds of things, but also how we should be stewards of our environment. The next command was to have dominion over the plant life. God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. 
Notice that his command to Adam was not just what Adam was going to eat, but what the animals would eat. He was not to wipe out the resources that the animals would be feeding upon. Okay? Uh, he was not to destroy their habitat. He was the ruler, not the destroyer. And even though modern radical ecologists have been bizarre, I think, and unbalanced in the way in which they're trying to preserve things, we have to be ecologically sensitive. We have to be. And Beisner shows what the biblical balance, I think, on that is. By the way, God's ideal was not virgin, untouched land. It's very opposite. God's uh, ideal was not swamp and overgrown jungle like the green people, you know, make it out to be, oh, don't let any man step foot on there. God's ideal was a garden, a subdued, a ruled place where both animals and men live together and so i think we need to have that balance too don't buy into this nonsense you know that men can't encroach on wild habitats no if we handle it right we can verse 26 says that man was to have dominion over the physical earth verse 28 says man was to subdue the physical earth to himself fill the earth and subdue it well that involves mineral extraction you know mining involves uh, chemical studies any other science and technology relating to the earth and then, as I mentioned, Jeremiah 33 indicates God made, when he made his covenant with Adam, he made the covenant with the day and with the night, and he gave the stars as a heritage to man. Let me read you Deuteronomy 4.19. This is a great verse. If you're arguing with Greenpeace-type Christians, um, it's a rebuke of their divinization of the nature. It says, Take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. He says, why in the world would you worship nature? I've given nature to you. Why would you submit yourselves under the authority of nature? I've given it the very reverse. But the interesting thing about that passage, he says, not only should you not divinize nature, I have given the sun, the moon, the stars as a heritage for mankind and so it's something that can be harnessed by man jeremiah 31 verse 5 who gives the sun again it's a gift of god and so morris points out that this dominion mandate is therefore the basis for every science every legitimate discipline known to man now i think in the last hundred years there's been a phenomenal increase in technology it's just growing at an astronomical rate but i think we are at the bare infancy stage of the potential for taking dominion and ruling over this planet earth i want to give you an illustration and it's from a couple hundred years ago and i think it's great and if you want to read e calvin beisner's you know we're losing all of these minerals through extraction but actually uh as less and it's harder and harder to get out the technology gets better for extracting it and we actually have more now than we had before and it really is phenomenal the way in which uh technology even in the reuse of materials but here was a guy he was a black man by the name of george washington carver very godly christian took the dominion mandate seriously he had many other discoveries uh and many similar amazing things like what he did with the peanut i just want to read you about the peanut he said i carried the peanuts into my laboratory and the creator told me to take them apart and resolve them into their elements with such knowledge as i had of chemistry and physics i set to work to take them apart i separated the water the fats the oils the gums the rosins sugars starches pectoses pentosins amino acids there 
I had the parts of the penis all spread out before me. And he went on to describe what he did with that. Now, this man, <coughs> despite primitive laboratory conditions and despite opposition from other people, made over 300 derivative products from the lowly penis, including things like cheese, milk, flour, ink, dyes, wood stains, soap. Nobody had ever thought to do that before. It, they were just blown away by all the things that he brought out of that. They just thought the peanut was pig food. But Carter, not Car Carver, had the urge to take dominion, and he used his God-given capacities to do so. Christianity, I think, gets the credit for most of the technology that the West has invented. Contrary to all the Christian bastards, I don't think there would have been the environment or the impetus to be able to develop the Christianity if it was not for the, uh, the, the influence of, of Christianity, especially uh, since the time of the Reformation. And uh, what I want to encourage you to do is to do all of your occupations with the realization it is a service to Christ. You are taking dominion and seek to take dominion to the best of your ability. Amen.